Hello, my name is Sanjit Gupta. I'm a grad student at Cal and I listen to Berkeley Grocks every day. I enjoy the uh, celebration of sciences with radio. It's kind of like the uh, radio that I listened to uh, back in Bombay. Thank you. Come again. KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. Good afternoon, I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, walking sticks, viruses, and dark matter. Also, we'll be joined by Stacey Vieira from the National Fisheries Institute. In addition, you can find out what a difference engine is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokotron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming up right here on the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. So you're not the voice of anything this week, huh? <laughs> well, I guess I'm still the voice of uh, the voice of the leprechauns. The leprechaun. Where's me pot of gold? I, I still don't know. I'm looking for it, and uh, I, I'll get it to you soon. <laughs> All right. So, Charles, have you ever been sprayed by a walking stick? Oh, my goodness. The, well, that's the animal fact of the week. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why I'm blindsided by it every week, but yet here it is. <laughs> In fact, they can probably blind you. <laughs> Well, they are. They're very sharp and pointy. Yeah. So you you probably heard about these walking sticks. They apparently can conceal themselves by looking like a stick in the forest. But what happens if you aggravate them? They can actually spray a very noxious chemical um, to animals or humans, and it's actually um, quite painful to the nose and eyes. Oh wow! So they have more than just the camouflage. Yeah, more than camouflage. Uh, the secretion is actually uh, pretty strong stuff. So. Scientists have been wondering uh, what exactly is the stuff, and it turns out it's a 10-carbon uh, uh, organic molecule called a dolicolio. But until recently, they weren't sure what exactly uh, was in this mixture. And it turns out this compound has um, three stereocenters, uh, basically three chiral centers. So essentially it has um, eight different configurations. And it turns out uh, from from detailed study, from NMR studies, that each insect has actually different ratios of, of these eight different compounds. Oh, wow. So it, they, they produce them all. They produce them all, but, but in different amounts. In different amounts. And that could either say a lot about what the insect is um, communicating or, you know, the identity of that individual insect. Hmm. So I, I guess they're like humans, you know, everyone has a different face. <laughs> <laughs> Except they have a different scent. Yeah. Or in this case, a different poison. <laughs> So anyways, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, I guess it shows how much uh, NMR has advanced to be able to show uh, detail the uh, stereoisomers of a compound. 
you know, of all of all the quantitative techniques in uh, chemistry, uh, NMR has been my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's magnetic. It's painless, right? <laughs> uh, so there was a very nice uh, article in um, ACS Chemical Biology. if NMR is going to be able to uh, probe the mysteries of HIV. Uh, yeah, why not? Uh, I, I can't see why not. Probably it already has. Uh, that was my segue. Kind of a bad one, actually. <laughs> uh, so actually, researchers are uh, creating hybrid viruses of HIV and the simian, simian influenza virus, SIV. Okay, so what if some like nasty thing comes out, like an airborne version of uh, HIV? Uh, well, then I guess we'll all run screaming for the hills, and uh, it'll be a brave new world. Yeah. Uh, but this is actually uh, motivated by the fact that uh, researchers can't actually infect test animals with HIV, uh-huh. being it very specific to humans only. So when they do look at this in, for example, monkeys, right. they test it with the simian influenza virus. But it's not really a great model because it's a little bit different. Right. So what they've tried to do is uh, create a hybrid virus that might capture more of the properties of HIV, mm-hmm. but uh, um, uh, still not be quite so deleterious. Hmm. And so what they did is they created a uh, virus that's part HIV, part SIV. And this was done by Paul Bianias at the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center in New York. And basically their colleagues replaced two proteins in HIV, uh, one that encapsulates the viral RNA and the another that's essential for replication. And they put this in the monkey and allowed it to replicate. And they got a hybrid virus that's apparently 88% HIV. Wow, this sounds like intelligent design, huh? <laughs> or not so intelligent. Uh, well, the intelligence uh, will be reveal itself in the future, but this is certainly just showing that a, uh, a new tool exists for studying this uh, very deadly di- virus. <laughs> uh, so this is published in a recent edition of Science. So, Charles, what would you prefer, hurricane or a dust storm? Uh, well, I, I guess uh, if the dust storm were very localized and, uh, you know, I, I'd go with a hurricane. Go with a hurricane? Okay, so um, it turns out there might be an inverse correlation between the two, um, especially between the uh, dust from the Saharan Desert and the hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean. And it turns out um, during periods of intense hurricane activities, there's very little dust in the atmosphere while... Uh, Time, during times of strong dust storms, there are very few hurricanes across the Atlantic. So this was, uh, uh, I guess, a phenomenon that was uncovered by Amado Evans at the University of Wisconsin, and they studied uh, 25 years' worth of satellite data uh, to establish this correlation. And um, while um, there's no um, uh, concrete conclusion to this, uh, meteorologists believe that they can use dust activity to monitor or predict uh, uh, hurricane storms in the future. Oh, very nice. Uh, well, I guess that's uh, good news, I guess, for all those living in Florida. <laughs> right. Or the Sahara Desert. And actually, something interesting is that um, if it's dusty in Puerto Rico, that dust actually came all the way from Africa. Hmm. Um, and they claim that the uh, sunsets are actually very beautiful because I guess the dust somehow enhances the um, oh, yeah, light the scattering. Sure, yeah. 
That's why uh, the sunsets are so beautiful in uh, Los Angeles. It's all the smog. <laughs> yeah, nitrous oxide, right? Yeah. Um, anyways, this was a very nice article um, in the recent edition of Geophysical Review Letters. All right, and finally, uh, just a great note about uh, this deep, dark picture in cosmology. The deep, dark picture, what, the black, dark matter That's energy? That's exactly right, the dark matter energy. Are you fans of the dark, of the dark matter? I guess so. I mean, it's, uh, it's what most of the universe is anyways, right? <laughs> That's what they say. We're just that unusual stuff. It's the dark side of the force. And uh, what it turns out is that this, this unknown force, which is called dark energy, is pretty much pushing uh, the galaxies apart. And so uh, previous research has shown that uh, the universe is accelerating by that process. You mean the expansion of the universe? Right. Uh, and so uh, a lot of this research has been done uh, by uh, observations of exploding stars known as Type 1a supernova. Uh, but, of course, this only goes back, um, you know, such stars only go back a certain amount of time in the universe. Mm-hmm. And astronomers who are trying to peer into the far, far past need to find other sources to actually uh, investigate. Right. So uh, this is what a group led by Claudio Fermani of the Berra Astronomical Observatory in Marait, Italy, has done. Is uh, They've looked at uh, a new type of uh, event called the gamma ray burst. Mm-hmm. And this essentially allows them to uh, look back uh, even further, almost over 10 billion years or so, and uh, what they were able to show is that by comparing both uh, the results from the supernova and the gamma ray bursts is that um, the density of this dark energy has pretty much remained unchanged for over 10 billion years. Wow. So, uh, I mean, does that make this glob of energy more mysterious than we thought? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, the dark energy is so mysterious that uh, not even God understands it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, published in a recent edition of the Royal Astronomical Society. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. In a few moments, Miss Stacy Vieira joins us to talk about the state of our fisheries. So stay right there.
Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, environmentalists have been concerned that the world's livestock for fishes may be dwindling as a result of increased consumption and climate change. But at the same time, uh, the fishing industries have their own voice for advocating um, healthy farming. Well, joining us today is uh, Stacey Vieira, a spokesperson for the National Fisheries Institute uh, based in Washington, D.C. Ms. Vieira, thank you so much for joining us here today on Berkeley Rocks. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Frank. So... First of all, could you tell us, uh, you know, what or who exactly is the National Fisheries Institute? Um, sure. The National Fisheries Institute um, has been around for more than 60 years to work with uh, the seafood community to provide consumers in the uh, United States and around the, the globe with the healthy seafood products that uh, they wish to, to feed to their families. And we can be found on the web, actually, at uh, about seafood.com. Great. And um, what exactly is your background? How did you become interested in the uh, fishing industry? Well, everybody loves to eat. <laughs> I hope it, most people love to eat. And I, I know I sure do. And, um, and when I heard about this position, my, my background is really in um, media relations and, and public affairs. So communicating with the media and with the public about different topics, this seemed like a, a great fit for somebody who loves to eat and, and certainly loves to eat fish. So I guess to begin with, um, you know, what, what exactly are some of the um, misconceptions out there about the fishing industry? Well, I think we have, we have a, a great product. That's really where, uh, where I, f- I feel as if we have, we have a pretty easy job in that recent surveys of, of Americans have shown that more than 80, I believe more than 85 to 88% of Americans enjoy eating seafood of, of any variety. So what's important to remember is uh, Americans turn to fish because, number one, they, they love to eat it. And uh, another thing is it, that's primarily because it, it tastes good and it's enjoyable, too. And one of the prime uh, factors driving people to, to consuming seafood, aside from the great taste, is also because of the health benefits. Many Americans know that seafood is a low-calorie, low-fat uh, meal choice. And as more and more scientific studies come out talking about the health benefits of seafood, the more we learn about uh, the health benefits of the of the foods that we really that we really love to eat, and um, another issue that is um, that is gaining interest is really about the sustainability of our of our nation's fisheries and then of our global fisheries. And an, an interesting fact that your listeners might not know is um, the NOAA Fisheries Service is the government agency responsible for. Uh, tracking and, and uh, monitoring our, and, and maintaining our nation's fisheries. And the most recent report regarding sustainability in this country has found that more than 80% of our nation's fisheries are well-managed, meaning that they'll provide seafood now and, and into the future. So there, there's plenty of supply uh, for the future. And, uh, and in addition to, to, to that, aquaculture is a... Uh, is another method that is going to maintain the sustainability of our wild capture stocks while um, providing that growing demand for seafood that we see um, in the country. So, you know, one of the concerns here, especially in California, is about um, mercury in the uh, fishes, especially with larger fishes. Um, well, you know, what are the uh, latest findings on that? Well, the 
overall message that we're hearing from the Institutes of Medicine, which is part of the NAS, and uh, other groups such as the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, also in October published a study by Harvard University. Another study just came out in The Lancet. Really, the, the evidence keeps mounting that seafood, the, the uh, health benefits of seafood outweigh any sort of risk. And, um, and like I said, there have been a number of studies, in particular just in, in the past six months or so, that have really uh, demonstrated this and shown the, the overwhelming evidence that the benefit um, that you get from a low-calorie, low-fat, uh, high-protein food like fish outweighs the, the uh, potential negatives. Right, but uh, I guess one of the concerns here is that mercury is a sort of accumulating uh, type of metal, so if you eat it, it sort of stays in your body. And the, you know, the biggest uh, danger here is with uh, mothers who are pregnant. It sounds like we're hearing mixed signals here. Well, women of childbearing age have a special advisory, and part of part of the uh, confusion here is that is that the general public is taking the messages intended just for women of childbearing age, like you said, pregnant women, and applying it to themselves, which is exactly not what the Food and Drug Administration intended when they put out this advisory. And in a nutshell, what the advisory itself says is that if you are a woman of childbearing age or you're pregnant or, or breastfeeding, then you need to um, consume a variety of seafood in the diet. And in fact, that is, that is good advice for everybody. Um, what the FDA advisory also says is there are four particular types of, of fish, uh, swordfish, tilefish, king mackerel, and shark, um, which are not uh, heavily consumed in the U.S., as a matter of fact. But um, when you're pregnant, you might want to limit your consumption to that. That is, that is the advice from the FDA. Um, but it, it, it's interesting that the most recent study on this topic was just published in The Lancet in February, and what they found was that uh, women of childbearing age do tend to eat a variety of fish. However, to gain the most benefit for your baby at such a sensitive time, as you said, in that, in that child's life, you're, you're going to want to not, not to limit your seafood consumption, but increase your seafood consumption. So The Lancet study and those authors they actually encourage women of childbearing age to consume more than 12 ounces of seafood. But again, the important point is to eat a variety of fish and heed the government's uh, consumption advice if you are concerned. Similarly, um, there's been concerns about selenium in the fish. Is that good or bad? Selenium is good. Selenium is is a, a mineral that uh, some studies uh, suggest this is this is initial research that is uh, continuing to be developed. Um, some information is is suggesting that uh, selenium in the fish could have protective effects against the methylmercury, in effect, uh, potentially canceling it out. So stay tuned for some more information on that. I think we will we'll see some some more uh, robust science coming out on that topic. But um, for now, it's. It's uh, still developing, and we need to hear some more. So getting back on the topic of depletion, I, I think there was an article in the New York Times uh, maybe a month or two ago uh, talking about the oyster harvest in the New England, uh, Rhode Island area, and uh, a lot of that has already uh, come to a point where they can't harvest anything. Um, this seems a bit contradictory to some of the findings that you know our fisheries are in a good shape. You know, what can you tell us here? 
with that article in particular, I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to, but to to give a just a general understanding of, of how our fisheries are managed under the uh, NOAA Fisheries Service. It's part of uh, the Department of Commerce at, in the, the U.S. government. Um, each it, it, an ongoing process within NOAA Fisheries is to manage our wild capture fisheries, and this is done re- on a regional basis through eight different management um, committees. And what they do is assess the stocks. They have uh, a variety of interests, so conservationists and and government officials and and others are all on these um, are all on these panels to assess the the stocks, look at the the uh, biological um, levels of of, uh, of uh, fish in the in the water, and then make make uh, decisions about who, how much fish you can harvest out of those areas. Now, having said that, fisheries is not an exact science, and part of the reason that our fish stocks fluctuate is due to natural causes and things that, that go on in the ecosystem that uh, might not necessarily be directly related to the harvesting of seafood. So there are a variety of factors that go into um, harvesting fish, but um, the bottom line is that on an annual basis, NOAA Fisheries comes out with an assessment of our national um, stocks, and this year they have, have shown that more than 80% of our nation's fisheries are operating at a sustainable level, meaning that we will have fish now and, and well into the future. So um, this is something that NFI and our members are, are absolutely concerned about. It is, it is important to have a reliable supply of wild uh, seafood because consumers enjoy the taste and um, and it's incredibly important from a conservation standpoint to maintain the wild capture uh, fisheries and the health of our of our ecosystem. And at the same time, another way that we are maintaining the uh, sustainability of wild capture is through aquaculture or the farming of seafood. And increasingly, uh, Americans, more and more Americans are demanding uh, those healthy fish meals. So we need to find that way to to provide them well into the future. And uh, one of the ways we can help consumers uh, grow their seafood consumption is through uh, the farming of seafood. I do really appreciate your time here. I guess we're uh, running a little bit out of time. So could you tell us um, maybe if there's any last words you'd like to you know, add about uh, the NFI or uh, the work you're doing? Sure. We would encourage consumers to visit www.aboutseafood.com. We have uh, a lot of information about the health benefits of seafood, recipes, and um, cooking tips. And, of course, um, some of the sustainability questions that you have, uh, we, we answer those on our website as well. So for, for health and, uh, and environmental information, uh, please we welcome you to visit aboutseafood.com and, and learn more about cooking fish at home. Great. Ms. Vera, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you, Frank. And we were just talking to Ms. Stacy Vieira from the National Fisheries Institute. This is the Berkeley Grox show you're listening to. In a few moments, we'll find out what the difference engine is, so stay right there.
Captain, it's Sulu here, looking, oh my. The difference engine is malfunctioning, Captain. Well, based on Newton's methods of polynomials, I can build another one. But, oh my. Mr. Anderson, you cannot escape the Ronskian. It is like no other matrix. But if you know what it is, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't escape, but you might open your eyes. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Bye.